Hello and welcome to another episode of Cloud Security Podcast. Today, my guest was AJ Yon, and we spoke about compliance in cloud. Well, we specifically went into AWS, but the examples that were described in the call or in this live stream can be applied across Azure, Google Cloud, and I loved how AJ and I resonated on the fact that the audit process in a cloud world needs to be different and different in the context that an auditor should know about the services in AWS or Azure or Google Cloud so that they can actually partner up with the company that they're auditing. I loved how AJ and I went into some of the examples that are, if you are an auditor listening to this, you can use these examples. And we also touch on the fact that you don't really have to be super technical cloud security engineer level to be able to audit an AWS or an Azure or a Google Cloud environment. All it takes is a little bit of knowledge. And funny enough, without even realizing, a lot of us are already in a technology world. If you're listening to this on your phone or you're listening to this on your Alexa or wherever, you probably are in a technology world and you've had the motivation to pick pick this up. So if you're an auditor, it's, it's the same process, the same way you learned LinkedIn or Facebook or any of the other social media apps, you can learn AWS or Azure or Google Cloud. You, you just need the right motivation. The point that AJ and I was stressing in the podcast episode was the fact that it doesn't have to be a hard journey. Uh, there are some links in the resources on the show notes if you check out the website www.cloudsecuritypodcast.tv and um, you would definitely benefit from it. Uh, all that and more from AJ and uh, as always appreciate all the support. Thanks so much for all the live audience feedback so you guys would see that as well. So a lot of really interesting questions that came through. Uh, that definitely added a lot more value and made the conversation quite interesting. So thank you so much for the support, guys. All right, enough from me, and let's get into the episode. Hi, AJ. Hey, what's going on, Ashish? How are you? Good. How are you going? I'm great, man. I'm great. It's another beautiful day here in Miami, so I can't complain. Ah, dude, so jealous of you. I, I wanted to start with something that I, is a tradition. I hope you have your glass glass ready. Ah, oh, cheers. Ah, oh, cheers. What kind of wine is it? So I like Malbecs. Yeah, I, I'm a big wine guy. I, I really like red wine. It started a while ago. I have a basketball background, so I, I follow obviously like NBA and LeBron yeah. and Carmelo and Dwayne Wade, they, they, they're they really big into wine and they did a whole article about how wine has helped them in their careers and I just kind of jumped all over it and, and love wine and drink a lot of it. <laughs> oh, right. Okay, cool. Well, I, I think we should definitely talk some more wine after we do this. Yeah. Um, just uh, quickly, for people who don't know AJ, apart from basketball and wine, who is AJ and what's his path into cybersecurity? Yeah, so I started in cybersecurity like a lot of people I think that I've noticed lately in the U.S. and the U.S. in the U.S. military, where I served in the U.S. Army for about six years, ultimately earning the rank of captain and working really in like a technology officer role where I was responsible for for everything technology, uh, anything technologically related on for the unit, whether it was setting up the network to setting up our tactical radios to fire our missiles, which was I, I got exposed to a lot and learned a lot. So I started in the Army. Um, I left the Army about four years ago and went into cybersecurity consulting. And that's where I really jumped into cloud security and really learned a lot about cloud security. I was able to work with some of the, the larger cloud service providers and larger just service providers in general um, to help them solve their cloud security problems, really help them understand how to either migrate an acquisition to the cloud or just um, new ways to secure their cloud environments and, and do use native services to do that. So my path started in the army and then into cybersecurity consultant. I got obsessed with AWS and the cloud and, and kind of haven't looked back. From rocket launching all the way into uh, cybersecurity, that's really interesting. And I, I find it really fascinating. And I'm pretty sure you've heard this before as well. Like a lot of ex-military folks seems to go into cybersecurity. And I've asked everyone the reason. I'm sure you have your reason as well. So quickly, if you don't mind me asking you this question as well, why cybersecurity after launching rockets and missiles? I think it's two reasons. I think one, the veteran community that's filled with camaraderie and looking out for each other. 
And a lot of us have made it into the cybersecurity field and we're reaching back to get more veterans into the field because we see how much potential and how much growth there is here. And the other thing is, I think cybersecurity is all about solving problems and being a yeah. great problem solver. And that's what we did in the military, whether no matter what your job was, you were constantly solving problems from the first day you joined. So I think that that mentality translates well to cybersecurity. But I really think, especially in the U.S., it goes back to the, the, the mentors and the, the community that's constantly bringing vets up. I love that about that community, man. I've, I've met so many folks. It's not even funny that like everyone that I spoke to, like some, some kind of a military background. I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah, no, I'm not surprised you're in cybersecurity. With the security and compliance, right? What I, I wanted to start with, I usually ask the question, cloud security, what does that mean for people? But I kind of, kind of want to ask this the other way around. What does compliance and cloud mean for you? Yeah, so the first thing that comes to mind is shared responsibility. And hopefully in the future, it means security, which I don't think a lot of people think compliance and security, and we'll, we'll get into that. But I think about shared responsibility, and it's the cloud providers and the organizations hosting their data on the cloud, holding up their end of the bargain, right? The cloud yeah. providers are doing the physical security and environmental controls that they agreed to do. Um, and the organizations have their own responsibilities associated with the data and services and any kind of compute equipment that they are using in the cloud. So both organizations holding up their end of the bargain is really what compliance in the cloud is all about. And for people who don't know shared responsibility, what is shared responsibility? Yeah, great question. So essentially, you know, there's this, this saying that is, is pretty common in the cloud industry where the cloud providers, your AWS, your Azure's, your GCP's of this world, they're responsible for security of the cloud. They're responsible for the physical controls, the environmental controls. So you no longer have to actually worry about um, hiring security guards or cameras or setting all that up because the cloud providers take care of that for you in a traditional like infrastructure as service setup. And the organization, so you and I, the customers that are using the cloud, you're responsible for the security in the cloud. You're responsible for your data. You're responsible for making sure that outside threats cannot get in. And, and that's really what the shared responsibility model is. It's a clear line um, between what are the cloud providers responsible for and what are the organizations responsible for. And understanding that at its core is really the foundation for compliance in the cloud. And to your point about shared responsibility, is that different in a hybrid world where I've got on-prem and I've got, I could be a cloud bill. Like I've only started in cloud every day. Like every day I've been drinking the AWS Kool-Aid or someone who's an enterprise basically has on-prem for 20 plus years and suddenly some parts of have started moving over to uh, cloud. So is that different over there? Yeah, it's definitely different and it's challenging, just to be honest. When you move into that hybrid space, it's challenging for the organization and it's challenging for your auditors because in the hybrid space, if, you're, if you have on-prem, you are responsible for those physical controls. You are responsible for those environmental controls. You are responsible for a lot of the controls that AWS and Azure and GCP had are, are taking over for you in the cloud. And from an audit perspective, now your auditors have to assess both environments, right? They're not gonna assess the physical security controls in AWS, but on-prem, now they have to come in and make sure that you're doing the physical security things necessary um, to meet your different compliance standards. So it's definitely challenging. And normally when I encounter an organization running like a hybrid on-prem cloud environment, I, I try to unpack why. I try to figure out like what's going on and why you're doing this because it just adds complexity and challenges. and. And generally, there's some misconception or, or fear behind moving that last piece of data or that last service to the cloud. They think they can't do it for whatever reason. And once you're able to overcome that, they see the benefits of just going into a completely cloud environment. It's complexity and the scope as well. Probably people want to limit the scope of the compliance to be either just cloud or I guess probably you want to have your best foot forward for auditing. Uh, so might as well start with the cloud. Not that I, I would say auditing in cloud is easier or difficult it based on the person as well you deal with. And there's a specific reason I call that out because I feel when you do compliance in cloud is different to how you say, for example, if I'm, and I'm thinking of some of the folks that I've spoken to in the audience who've come from an auditing background where they've audited, say done like a SOC 2, SOC 3, or an ISO 27001 for, for an on-prem world. And now suddenly they're seeing a lot more of AWS, Azure, Google Cloud. Now, what does this mean for them? Like when they're looking at cloud, should they be approaching it differently? Like what, what should they be doing? Yeah, they, you know, definitely should be approaching it differently. But I think really with 
cloud computing and especially compliance in the cloud and security at its core, it's the same. Like a SQL mm -hmm. database on-prem and a SQL database in the cloud, they're both SQL databases. How you go about getting the evidence, how you go about collecting the evidence, that's the difference. And that's where the auditors have to approach things differently. Um, and I'll give you a, a very two very quick examples of how you approach things differently in the cloud, right? And I'm, I'm going to talk about AWS just because that's what I, what I know and what I've kind of um, carved my career out in. But there's two reports on AWS that every auditor, as soon as you go and perform an audit on AWS, you should generate and you should ask your clients to generate. One is the IAM credential report and the other is the trusted advisor report. And the IAM credential report is a report that's going to give you data about who are the users, do they have MFA enabled, when's the last time they changed their password, when's the last time they switched, they rotated their access keys, all these other information, you're going to get information about the root account. This is information that would probably take you 30, 40, 50 pieces of evidence in the traditional world. You're asking for screenshots out of AD, you're asking for screenshots from the MFA tool, you're, you're asking for all this information that would have took a lot of different pieces of evidence. And I'm sure these auditors in the traditional environment, they know to go and ask for screenshots and ask for all these other things. but in AWS, the easiest thing to do is get that IAM credential report. You now answered about seven or eight questions with one report that every customer has available. If you go to the IAM console, it's right there on the left side. Um, it says credential report. You can download it. And it's a great report that you can alleviate a lot of these evidence requests. So if you're an organization, generate the credential report and give it to your auditors, whether they know what to do with it or not, because it's going to help you out a lot when it comes to the evidence requests. And then trusted advisor is another one. Trusted advisor yeah. is going to tell provide security group, S3 bucket stuff, RDS stuff, are your RDS um, uh, instances in multi-availability zone, all of this information that your auditors are eventually going to ask for. And if the auditors know this, you know, it's easy to get, and that's why the beauty of the cloud when it comes to compliance is like, there's so many tools. And I see somebody here has a question about services that um, we can look at as well, but there's so many tools and services out there that generate the information that you need in an audit that you just go get that from there instead of doing it the traditional way. And that's the biggest difference is understanding how to obtain the evidence and understanding how to test things differently in the cloud. Yeah, and I think to your point about the question that's asked by Arun over here, because he's kind of touched on the same thing where there are all these services and could that be more simple than it just instead of looking at all the services? I think, I, I, I mean, this is my opinion, but keen to know yours as well, that I feel like all those services are more from a monitoring and I guess an incident response. Like you're going to that territory. You're not going into an audit territory with those services though. Is that right? Or is that a, a different way to look at it? Well, I think you're right. But I also think, you know, I've seen and you know, environments where organizations use a lot of those services. And if you just look at what um, Arun just po posted there, I'm looking at that and you're testing a lot of the technical controls that are needed in most compliance frameworks. When it mm. comes to, you know, that's now, there was actually a report that recently came out that I posted about that guard duty had a third party test to verify that it can meet PCI requirements as an intrusion detection tool. So now guard duty actually does meet to be an intrusion detection tool. So if you're using that, you check the block off of many, many different frameworks. But I, I think, you know, for from an audit perspective, yeah, you're not going to give your auditors access to that because most of them won't know what those tools are, right? They won't know what to yeah. do. But if you're using those tools in the manner that those tools could be used, like to their full capacity, you're going to make your audit so much easier, so much easier because you can provide, those tools are doing a lot of the testing for your auditors, essentially. Inspector, is if you run Inspector on a regular cycle, we'll just take two tools from there really quick and I'll explain mm -hmm. kind of how this changes the scope of an audit. Patch management, really important in, a, in all frameworks, SOC 2, ISO, High Trust, HIPAA, everybody yeah. concerned about um, patch management. If you're using Inspector and you're using Systems Manager, you can run an Inspector scan on a monthly basis, um, collect vulnerabilities, run Systems Manager just to perform these updates on a regular basis using maintenance windows. And now you, do, you, you, you validated two controls. You perform vulnerability scans and you're remediating those vulnerabilities from those scans and, and it's all automated. You set it up once and it does it every time. And now your auditor just needs to go in and make sure that those things are done. They don't need to collect the vulnerability reports from every single scan that you wouldn't traditionally have done in the background in the, in the older days. So that's, again, where you go from providing a ridiculous amount of evidence when it comes to <laughs> vulnerability scan and your auditor is looking through this stuff. They have no clue what they're looking at. So you go and use these tools on AWS and now you're just showing configurations. It takes about a minute to show. It just really changes the game when it comes to how you're providing evidence here. I, I must say, any auditors who are listening to this, they're basically taking deep press at the moment. They're like, what is AJ on about? What is he doing? <laughs> just so I hope that answers your question, Arun. But uh, good point. I, I just wanted to start with this as well, right? 
yeah. that I know people like you and I or other folks who are quite, I wouldn't say we are quite technical. We're we are just technical enough to be dangerous. Like I, I'll probably talk for myself. I think I don't think I'm like the best engineer out there. I know a bit of Python. I can be a bit dangerous with Python, but I, I'm not like I can't build enough that I'll just build the whole AWS environment from scratch without Googling. I probably still need to do a lot of Google and I'll, I'll eventually get there, but I'll take some time. So does, does this mean that the auditors who are listening to this, who probably have done hybrid, oh, sorry, a, not a hybrid, but an on-prem world, they're going into cloud and like, oh shit, this seems like AJ, I, I have to learn all these, like how many services did Aaron listed about 10 and then 247 services in general in AWS. So it's like, right, I'm basically spending each day of my life just looking at all these services, what they do. Is that right. what my future is as an auditor? No, no, not at all. I think that's the misconception. And I'm like you, like, I don't consider myself overly technical. I thought it was always strange when people would say I'm a technical auditor because I don't think I'm that technical. I think, you know, the cloud security engineers of this world, those folks that are um, doing that stuff every day, they're super technical. And I don't think an auditor needs to get to that level. If you're at that level and you want an audit, you'd be great, but you don't have to know that much. I think the important thing to know is just being able to know what the services do and how they can address compliance frameworks. That's the most important part is understanding how to provide recommendations as well, right? Being able to say like, hey, you're using this service, you should use it in this manner. And you have to know the tools at an, not at an intimate level, you don't have to be a deep security expert, but you just gotta know a little bit about the services, know the terminology, be able to speak the language. Don't ask them to show you their servers, ask them to show you their EC2 instances, you know? That type of communication alleviates a lot of that adversarial relationship between auditors and the client. When the, when the client realizes that you know a little bit about the technology and you understand some of their challenges, they're going to trust you a little bit more to show you more. But if they know they're talking to someone that doesn't know the difference between uh, a security group and, the BP, and a VPC, they're going to just you know, turn off and they're not going to sit there and want to. A developer, you think about a developer spending time with an auditor. They're really busy and now they have to explain to this auditor what AWS is and how the shared responsibility model works. So that's the basics that every auditor should have. You know, they should, you know, cloud practitioner is a great entry level cert. It's not for technical folks. And I think that's a cert that gives you the basic information about what the services are and what they do and being able, you know, most of the time we think of audits as like a check, right? It's like I'm coming in. A, and, and checking to make sure that they do X, Y, and Z. But, you know, it's a partnership. Your, your clients are going to look for you for recommendations on how to do things the right way. And if you are not aware of the technology and you're not aware of how to use some of these services, you can't provide those recommendations, right? It doesn't mm -hmm. require you to be super technical. You can do a lot of things on AWS without knowing how to code. You can understand a lot of things without knowing how to code. It just takes a little bit more research to understand, like you said, the difference between what you were doing in the on-prem world to now in the cloud world. I think the, the simple way to explain this is, and this is the example that I tell people that, you know, a lot of us people, a lot, a lot of us were not taught uh, what are the kind of services are on LinkedIn or Facebook? But we all picked up. We all know how to send messages on LinkedIn. We all know how to do posts on LinkedIn. And I'm not writing a Python code behind it. I just test the service and like, oh, this is how it works. You make a you make a few mistakes, but you learn along the way, and you kind of, you know, that becomes your learning curve, and then you move forward. I I feel like it's very similar from an auditing perspective as well. The AWS landscape, it may sound scary or the cloud landscape may sound scary, but once you kind of try dabbing into what are these really doing, you can yeah. always map them back to say an on-prem world, which a lot of us would be coming in unless you're super young and this is the first thing you're doing. Yeah, yeah. you're really lucky. I'll tell for myself that I've seen both the worlds. I've, I've ordered hardware as well from a data center and waited to, like what, 30 days, 40 days? I think 40 days, 40 days was the quickest for me from memory. Uh, that was yeah. like, oh, it's so, so fast, 40 days. And I think I was told that that's been expedited. And I'm like, <laughs> coming from that world, the whole AWS world where I just need to swipe a credit card and it takes only a couple of seconds before I have uh, the opportunity to start a server and everything. It's, it's just that bit of, a, bit of a learning curve. They should be open to that. I think that's kind of what we're trying to message over here, right? Yeah, so you, you just have to get over the, the, the fact that you don't know and then just be willing to go and learn. I think, you know, we struggle in the cybersecurity industry a lot. You hear about imposter syndrome and, and people mm -hmm. struggle 
imposter syndrome. And I, I still do it to this day. I was participating in an AWS security specialty exam writing workshop, and I was super nervous going in. I was, I don't know if I belong with the everybody in here. There was people from AWS. There was people that were like CTOs at companies. I was like, they all know way more than me. And I, I but then I started to realize and sit back, like, okay, like even if they do know more than you, you're going to learn from this. Um, and putting mm-hmm. yourself out there is, is worth it because you may be able to benefit someone else. So like, I think auditors have to get over that imposter syndrome and realize that, you know, you're a trusted party, you're a trusted advisor for your client. So it's not only your responsibility to yourself to learn more and to get better, but to your client, you should want to, so you can provide a better service to them. Yeah, hundred percent. And just quickly touching on some of the comments coming in as well. Oh, Amar mentioned the fun part to me about AWS security that most people complain about is understanding what you're responsible for from a security standpoint. Knowing that is ninety percent of the job. That is so true. Yeah, that is so true. Model, man. If you if you just I, you, there's if you imagine the amount of people that I talk to that tell me that because they're hosted on AWS, they're they're SOC two compliant or HIPAA compliant. It's it's through the roof. And I'm like, that's not how this works. You have to understand that you have responsibility. That shared responsibility model is so important. Yeah. And uh, to your point about, you know, we keep hammering about shared responsibility model on AWS, but it doesn't really change between different clouds. So it does it. No. Yeah. All, all across the board, they all call it the same thing. It's shared responsibility model from the from Google Cloud to Azure, there's always that line of responsibility where at the end of the day, everybody just needs to understand that you're responsible still for your data. You're still responsible to protect your data. The cloud's not gonna do that. Even if you go to a a platform as a service model, you still are responsible for protecting stuff. You still have your own requirements there. And that's the part that, like Amar said, like that's 90% of the job. If, If the auditors understand the shared responsibility model and can go in with a clear distinction of what the cloud takes care of and what the organization takes care of, that's, you know, there's not going to be some of those questions that you scratch your head at. Like, did he just ask (laughs) how we're securing our U.S. East one region? Like those questions won't happen anymore. Um, You know, it's it's relationships in the audit world, too. You have to be able to build that relationship between you and your customer and understanding responsibility model is how you do that. Yep. And uh, I've got a question. I don't know if he's related, but Anthony Yon has a que- uh, well, state more of a statement. Tools and tools and tools make it suck less. This is good stuff, man. <laughs> that is so true. Uh, all I hear is tools, 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 tools. Uh, there is no relation I'm assuming. Yeah, there is. That's my older brother, actually. Oh, there you go. Hello, older <laughs> brother. <laughs> nice of you to join us. And I've got a comment from Uday saying automation is a key for us to catch up with DevOps. Uh, oh, we've got Dr. Abdullah as well. Hey, oh, so, <laughs> cheeky comment. Uh, David O'Brien, uh, is the auditor then in that case a certified architect then? <laughs> Maybe, you know, because I, I, I realized that that word architect in the industry, you know, it, it covers a wide range of people, right? You hear about cloud security architects and sometimes those folks are actually configuring things and sometimes they're just talking about stuff. And maybe, you know, auditors are, should be considered that. That might force you to kind of think about things a little bit differently if you consider yourself an architect and are actually going in. But I think that might scare a few auditors away if they, if they say that. <laughs> I, I think they just, they just dropped off after this. They're yeah. like, oh, that's it. <laughs> this is not my future. I would not uh, let people get into cloud ever again. Uh, maybe uh, we can make this easy for them uh, before they jump off the feed, I guess. If they want to start off with, and I think you mentioned two examples already where you spoke about I am credential report as well as a trusted advisor. What are some of the easy things that they can knock off? Uh, let's just focus on AWS for the moment. Uh, what are some of the easy things they can knock off if they're listening to this? Like, okay, I've got two things. Anything else that they should be looking at to start building those foundational stuff? We can probably tackle, maybe we can tackle the company side first and then go on to the auditor side. Like as a company, we're starting yeah. off today. And I know uh, in the audience, we have a few startups as well. What can they be doing to begin with some of the basic foundational stuff and from an auditor perspective who would be coming in what can they be looking at like oh let's just can, can you approach it like that yeah so let's start with the let's start with the company so you're just getting yeah. started and we won't go too deep into this but the company oh, should yeah. aws organizations that's one of my best pieces of advice that you can give to any organization starting on AWS is use AWS organizations, segment out your environment, segment out all of your accounts and use some of the security features there, which um, we can have a whole session um, on AWS organizations and multi-account setups. But just to make sure that you're 
you're doing the right things and you're, you're checking for the things that really matter, a trusted advisor report. It's free, doesn't require a setup. If you are on a business or developer support plan, you have access to all of the checks. So um, we can talk a little bit deeper about trusted advisor. Trusted advisor starts out where you, most people think of it as like a cost optimization tool where it's just gonna provide you like, you should save money here, but there's actually a security check in there. And every account, free tier account comes with six security checks, six core security checks is what AWS calls it. And that includes things as S3 bucket public access. How many times have we seen breaches in the news about S3 buckets getting breached and, and, and trusted advisor is telling you when those things are, that, that's, that's there. Security groups, do you have any security groups that are allowing open access to the world over port 22 or 3389 or 1433, all these ports that you're gonna do management type activities, are these open to the world? Um, and that's another trusted advisor check. Do you have MFA enabled on your root account? All of these basic hygiene security things that you need to do, trusted advisor will let you know. So you can set up alerts from trusted advisor, but I would also just, you know, constantly monitor that because it's picking up things globally. One of the things that I, I found that organizations don't do well when they first start on AWS is understand the difference between a global service and a regional service. And, and knowing that when you're in the EC2 console, if you look up in the upper right, it's going to say what region you're in. But if you go to trusted advisor, if you go to IAM or S3, you look up in the upper right, it's going to say global, which means that it's going to take a look at all of your resources across your account. So we've heard in the past of, of customers having somebody gained access to their account and stood up like a Bitcoin mining thing in like another region that they weren't using. And they're based out of the U.S. and they have like an AP East 1 some bunch of EC2 instances running and they get this ridiculous bill. You can alleviate that by using Trusted Advisor because you'll see why do I have 34 instances over in the AP East region that I've never been in before. So, you know, I would, I would encourage an organization to look at Trusted Advisor just to make sure um, some of those things are, 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 are verified. And that's one that doesn't require any setup. That's the reason why I'm harping on Trusted Advisor because it doesn't require you to know anything about any services. It's just going to give you these basic checks. And the other thing is identity and access management. You, you have to do that right. You have to get IAM right. When you first log into the IAM console, there's going to be this big pop-up and it's going to be five core things you need to do, like set a password policy, enable MFA. There's a few other things that enable MFA on root, create a user, just five basic things that AWS says you must do on this account. Do that. Start there. So like this, is, it makes it so easy, right? To, to do things the right way, at least from the beginning. So I am trusted advisor, start there. And then from there, you'll be able to expand out. S3 is such a big thing on, on AWS and an a easy access point from a breach perspective. So I think, you know, make sure you're doing the right things to protect your S3 buckets. I, I actually did a video a few months ago about how you can, and this is for the auditors that are not technical. I, I, I did a video, a 20 minute video that shows how you can automatically remediate any public S3 buckets without writing the line of code. You can just click through the console and do it using AWS config and, and using their automatic remediation steps. And I did a quick video that I'll, I'll try to find and share with you, Ashish. Um, yep. It's look into something like that to where you can take away some of these things that constantly cause breaches for large organizations like the Capital Ones of this world that you can alleviate from your company immediately. Imagine you move to the cloud and the first thing you do is tell your boss, hey, we'll never have any public buckets. We won't have that problem. That thing you see in the news will never have, and it takes 20 minutes without knowing how to code. So the non-technical folks um, can take care of that. I'll, I'll pause before we go to the auditor because it looks like we have some good like organization type questions and then we'll yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think so as well. The first one was, is there a recommended time frame between doing cloud audits, if it can be automated, does it make sense to do it frequently as you can, as frequently as you can? That's a great question. So it really depends on what those audit standards or frameworks are being evaluated against. Most of the standards out there require an annual audit. If you think about SOC 2, your, a SOC 2 report is looking back in time. It's looking at your last 12 months. So every year you're going to have to refresh that. Where similar like ISO 27001, there's required to do annual activities. So Automating this makes it a lot easier from a maintenance perspective. You don't have to worry about whether or not your controls are operating because you already made sure they are. Another very simple thing to do in AWS is a force MFA policy where you can put an IAM policy for every user. That means if they don't sign in with MFA, they get put in a group that essentially only allows them to re-enable MFA. So the only thing they can do is enable MFA. And then once they enable MFA, they can go out and do whatever they were doing. But something as simple as that 
Now you don't have to worry about the MFA control anymore. And for the rest of the time that you're on AWS, that goes away. So, you know, I think automation makes it easier to, to manage it, but you still, most frameworks are going to have to do it annually. And that's just yeah. the way it works. Yeah. And I think to your point, the time frame is still dependent on the, the kind of certification you're looking at as well. Right. I think, cause exactly. you would still have to bring in an external lawyer at that auspicious day on that year of, I guess that, that doesn't go away. It's just that more you're being proactive about it. I think that's how we, we are, that's the way I see it. Thanks for that question, Neon Jay. I think that's hopefully that answers your question. Yeah. I did want to uh, quickly point that out as well, that even with the time frame uh, and doing continuous, do you feel like it changes, it's a change of mindset as well? Because, and coming from, from an ISO perspective, I remember having conversations with people like, why the hell am I doing this activity manually? Even that, that flick of a switch to like, can this be automated? Like yeah. even that question for some people, like, I don't know, I never tried. I'm like, can we look at if it can be automated? Like yeah. I, I would, I would definitely encourage people to even every task that you see, whether what kind of compliance it is, just try not take a moment and just ask yourself that question. Yep. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm naturally lazy. So like, I always look to automate things and figure out <laughs> here, but I think it does change that mindset. And if you, if you're thinking, I think just thinking through, like when you were hired from whatever position you were hired, you were not hired to do repeated tasks. You were, you were hired to think and to use your brain. And so like, they hired you because of what you know. So if you're bogged down doing these repeated tasks, you're not getting, you're not doing the things that you were hired to do. Right. So automating allows you to get back to thinking and innovating and doing all the things you were actually hired to do. So that's, you know, I, I agree with you, like always be thinking that, you know, how can I automate this? That's the best way to look at most things in security, honestly. Or you can just find a company where just, they just hire you to do the same thing again and again. And just like you can automate it, but you tell them that you're doing this again and again. Exactly. And you do a lot yeah. of golf time and <laughs> <laughs> that's right uh, i've got another question from arun over here how is the guard duty findings different from trusted advisor report uh, i think oh yeah recently they've started adding s3 protection too as well so is there any comments yeah. on that yeah, the guard duty um, new S3 stuff is really great. The difference is guard duty is, is going to be a little bit more active and then have some alerting in there. Trusted advisor, you can't set like an individual alert for a, a specific check. You can only get like weekly reports. So guard duty is going to kind of do some more active monitoring. It goes back to it being that intrusion detection system. And then I think if you're, if you're getting into the spot of AWS where you're starting to use the guard duty, config, inspector, some of those tools, you should turn on security hub. Security Hub is an amazing service that I that I just recently started to get really in, deep into to learn. And it collects all of these findings from these different services like a guard duty and will perform alerting, remediation, kind of collect all in one spot and, and do a lot of the, the work for you from a from a management perspective. So if you're starting to use guard duty, you know, trusted advisor becomes less of a need because you're doing more more consistent monitoring versus trusted advisors kind of like that holistic view you can come in it's great for auditors because it doesn't require them to get access you can just give them a quick snapshot into what your environment is but if you're using guard duty like it it's way better to use that than trusted advisor for s3 stuff mm -hmm. also because guard duty is a paid service as well which exactly. I, it's just really interesting you it's a bit cheeky as well you are because i think the way they introduce a service initially oh just use it for free and suddenly it's like oh shit i'm paying money for this now like oh yeah. i should probably uh but to your point being a paid service the the difference is obviously stock differences there that's where they put more effort into guard duty than trusted advisor i guess but it's a great great baseline to start with then once you start paying you probably should want to just jump on the next one i guess exactly uh, i've got another question from david who from the, is there a company mandate to check these services? That's pretty much what the questions are. Who's in an organization? Is there one that, or is there one that you see? No, I don't. Um, the best organizations that I've seen use these tools, uh, they use it in an automated fashion. They use, they, they, they configure them in a manner to where you no longer have to think about them. Um, so they're using config to go out there and check that certain things are happening. And then in the old days you would use like a Lambda function to, to help remediate that. But now you can do some automatic remediation, but I, I think if unless unless you have one of those really skilled cloud security architects, they're not going to immediately go and start checking these. You, you'd be surprised at how many times I talk to engineers and they didn't even know about Trusted Advisor um, because, as David is mentioning, like they don't they, they don't necessarily care. They're doing it yeah. on their end. They're they're managing it. Their their security vulnerabilities in a different way using like infrastructure as code or some other kind of vulnerability management. So they're not thinking about things from the cloud perspective. But that's where you you get to use some of these tools that are 
um, built, the, the, the reason why I harp on AWS native security tools is because they were built for AWS, for your services. So they're going to find things in a manner that you may, if you're using a third party tool, you know, you might still get it. You know, you might still get the information, but this tool was specifically built to help you on AWS. Why not take a look at it and use it? So I think hopefully as more organizations become familiar with the tools and the adoption increases that it becomes regular to check. I think Security Hub is one of those tools that will increase adoption of a lot of the other security services because it finally brings it all together. You can have guard duty in there, Macy, Inspector, Config, all of these different services reporting into one spot and, and performing checks against different compliance frameworks. It's a really great service that I think is going to increase native AWS security service adoption. Perfect. And I think that's a great way to answer that as well. I think I've got another, which is kind of like on similar vein from uh, Nick over here. What advice can you give for organization preparing for an audit against specific compliance frameworks prior to audit itself? Should they self-document controls against a framework to show readiness internally? Should they consult a third-party order? What do you think? Yeah, that's such a great question, Nick. I, you know, it depends on the staff. I'm sorry for giving all these auditor it depends answers. But <laughs> like you spoke like true consultant there. It right, depends. It's the business. You can't commit, right? It depends on the staff. If you have individuals that have background in these frameworks and they actually went through audits before, maybe they came from a firm before that were doing audits, let them self-document and self-test because they know what you're looking for. But if this is your first time ever going after a SOC 2, don't try to tackle that on your own. You're going to do things that you don't have to do. You're going to knock your head against the wall um, because you're trying to solve a problem that might not actually be a problem. I think that's when you consult a third party for a readiness assessment. And, you know, the readiness assessments, generally, they're geared towards giving you the answers to the test. And, you know, there's, there's ways that you can do that. You can go to the same firm that is going to ultimately issue your report. So if you know you're going to go with X firm to do your SOC 2, you probably should consult with them to do the readiness assessment. They're not going to be able to actually implement things for you because there is independence from an audit perspective, but they can provide recommendations. And you kind of want to get the recommendations from the person that's going to do your audit. Um, you don't want to get it from another person. And then you go to a different person for the audit and they're like, well, you got to do this differently. But, you know, I would, I would, I would look at that. I think the, I, I'm not a fan of, honestly, of the readiness industry in the compliance space. I think, you know, in the compliance space, we know the answers to the test. We know what you're supposed to do for a SOC 2. We know what you're supposed to do for an ISO 27001, but we guard all this information. We hold it back and make people pay a lot of money for it. And I, I truly don't understand it. And there's probably, hopefully, audit firms on the line aren't too mad at me for saying this. <laughs> I was going to say, I think they just dropped off. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, we, we gate a lot of stuff in the cybersecurity industry. There's a lot of FUD out there on in, in this space that oh, yeah. I, you know, we, can, we can do better at. So... You know, maybe find another thing you can do with readiness is find like a freelance consultant or somebody to help you out that has some experience that will probably be a little bit cheaper than going to a third party and paying thousands of dollars. But I think if you don't have boils down, to if you don't have the experience internally, don't don't try to do a self audit yourself. You're going to spin your wheels and you may not know some of the nuances that are um, involved. And that's when you need to get a third party involved. Yeah. And I, I think you uh, hit it on the nail with that one as well, because it, being a security person, it's always easier. Oh, I, I'll get the standard. Like, I mean, it cannot be that difficult, but I think it's kind of like the, the comment that your elder brother made about tools, 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 where mm -hmm. you can spend the time and not focus on something that may be important for your company and just focus on this for months, reading through the documentation, finding out what's relevant, yep. or you could just pay someone. That's spot on. And then like the other thing is like you can do all that reading and then you go out and do something, change your environment because you misread a standard. So like in SOC 2, this, there's a really good example here. There's a, a criteria CC 6.8 that talks about preventing malicious software. And most organizations are modern architectures. They're using Linux. They're using like a defense in-depth strategy. So they're not installing AV on their machines, on their EC2 instances anymore. They're just not doing that. But if you're just an auditor reading CC 6.8 or just an internal person, you're like, oh, now I have to install AV on all my machines. You go out and buy this AV license and all this other stuff. And then you find <laughs> the auditor, you actually didn't even need to do that. And that's the part you get in trouble is you start spending money because you think you're addressing a standard and you didn't even have to. So like that, I, I'm with you. Like, don't try to do it yourself. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I will find, I mean, well, worst is not just find a cheaper partner, I guess, to, to your point. You don't have to go for the most expensive. Right. I'm, I'm going to dish on the big, big foes here, but I'm just, just saying there are a lot of other, other people out there as well. It doesn't have to be like a really expensive exercise, just saying. Yeah. Yep. Um, I've got a few more questions here for David. Does your, does a point in time annual check in the cloud even make sense? Oh, <laughs> so, man. 
I love, very difficult. I love the yeah. engagement here. These questions are amazing. So this is really good. So yes, and I'll, I'll, I'll give the, I'll give the yes first. So, and I'm going to take it from a SOC 2 perspective. In a SOC 2 world, there's a SOC 2 type 1 report, which is a point in time report. It's a port that um, talks about the suitability of design of your controls. Essentially, do you have controls in place? Do you do background checks or do you do vulnerability scans? And that report is usually what happens at the beginning of an organization going through their compliance journey. So they do a SOC 2 readiness. The next thing they do is a SOC 2 type 1 because it's less requirement from an evidence perspective. It's a little bit easier to, to complete because you're not providing evidence over 6 or 12 months. You're only providing example pieces of evidence. You're showing... Um, an example S3 bucket or an example RDS instance that's encrypted instead of showing all of them. So it's a lot easier for an organization to go from nothing to a SOC 2 type 1. And what that does, it allows you to go give that report to your customers because that's ultimately what the compliance report is for, right? To go get business. And you, that allows you to go give that report to your customers without waiting the long 12 months for the full audit. Does it actually mean anything? Not really. Because it's a point in time. Again, like the SOC 2, your SOC 2 type 1 report would say, if we were doing this today, what's today, September 19th, it would say as of September 19th, 2020. So tomorrow, your SOC 2 type 1 is no longer valid um, because your controls were in place as of September 19th, 2020. Um, when you do the SOC 2 type 2s, when you do ISO 27001s, when you do high trust, all of these frameworks, they have a requirement to report on controls over a period of time. And your auditors should be asking for evidence over that period of time. They should ask for evidence. If you're on a quarterly basis for vulnerability scans, they should ask for at least two quarters of your vulnerability scan evidence and remediation evidence to cover that period of time. And that gets into how you're testing operational effectiveness, making sure that your controls are actually operating over a long period of time is really what the real audits make sense for. So yes, they make sense if you're starting, David, if you're starting out doing a SOC 2 type 1 is a great way to get a report in your customer's hand and, and, and prove to them that you're on the right path, but you need to, um, they're gonna expect that you're doing the type two next that shows it over a period of time and it shows in testing over that period of time. Yeah, but that's assuming the people actually know what the difference between SOC, SOC one, SOC two, or even the type one, type two as well. They're like, oh, he has a report. That's all I care about. Let's move on. <laughs> like job done, tick, move on. <laughs> that yeah. could happen as well. Absolutely. Sometimes I've, I've seen that where organization provided a SOC 2 type 1 and they thought their customer was going to want a type 2 and they didn't even ask for it. So they're like, we're not going to do the type 2 because they didn't actually care. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, so before you jump down the whole gamut of type 1, type 2, just, just do type 1 and see how far you get. If they ask for type 2, oh, I'm on my way to do the type 2. Not that yeah. it's a professional advice, but you know, you should do what your customers ask. That's all I'm saying. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've got another question from Dr. Abdullah. With regards to shared cybersecurity responsibility, does the cloud customer get advised by the cloud provider? Ooh, what cloud cybersecurity solutions are not currently being applied so that the customer can implement them? Oh. It depends how much you pay them. <laughs> yeah, uh, I wish they were. I wish really, I really wish they were, because you think you would think that when you spend so much money on AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud, they would just come and tell you what right. you need to be doing and not have, yeah, yeah, sorry, I'll let you answer it. I've just got my own emotions in more than this. No, I'm with you, I'm with you. I, I think AWS is getting better. I remember a few years ago, it was really easy. You, when you created the S3 bucket, it automatically was public. And I was like, man, come on, like you guys are, <laughs> you guys are not even trying. Like you're just gonna make this really difficult for people to do the right thing. But now when you create a bucket, it's automatically private. And if you try to make it public, you get all these warnings. And then if you even try to change it from private to public, you have to type in confirm. So like they make it, they're making it a little bit harder to, to mm -hmm. do the bad things. But I mean, I'm with you, doctor. Like I wish they did more when you signed up. The, the thing is they have the free tier and it's so easy to get started on AWS without talking to anybody. Um, and it's probably not worth it from them, from the big cloud provider perspective to have a dedicated account manager to every single person that creates an account. So you kind of have to pay a little bit to get into that upper tier. You get in that enterprise or business support plan, you'll be able to get access to some folks to explain things. I will say this though, from the folks in the startup space, if you don't have like AWS Activate credits, I would look into those because oftentimes you can get free business or free developer support plans through just being a startup, being a new organization or a nonprofit as well. There's a lot of resources out there where you can get access to these enterprise and developer support plans by using free AWS Activate credits from like third parties out there. For nonprofits, there's a website called TechSoup.com 
where you can sign up and get some of those credits. It's, it's a really great way to get some of this advice that the, the doctor here is asking about. Oh, perfect. And uh, I've got another supporter of FUD is definitely out there. You're right, Neon. There is a lot of FUD out there, man. I'm glad we're we are this, this demystifying our FUD and the need for having a FUD at all. Maybe we can change gears. I mean, we kind of went into the specifics quite a bit. Can yeah. you know, how does this work at scale? Like, you know, we spoke about from a startup perspective, you can, this is what you can start. You can, if you want, you can have your documentation. How do you scale this, say from a startup tomorrow, I'm turning in, I know I'm turning into a Facebook tomorrow. Yeah. How do I get that maturity scale? Like how, how have you seen this done well from a maturity perspective? Yeah, I've seen, I've seen it done really well and really poorly. So really poorly is where you don't think you need more than one AWS account. You're a startup and you only have one AWS account and you, you're running everything in there. You're, you're doing security, you're doing your development, you're doing your deployments, and you're doing it in one account. I don't care if it's separate regions. You're not thinking about the future because even from a not even from a security perspective, each account comes with service limits. So there's, you're going to reach a, a limit at some point if you grow to Facebook tomorrow. So um, you should, the, the, the first thing and the, the way that I've seen this done right is from a startup perspective is they were in a multi-account setup from the beginning. Um, with AWS organizations and using service control policies. So if you set this up right from the beginning, you can essentially create these little bubble of accounts that only can do very specific things. If the audience isn't familiar with AWS organizations, it's a way to organize multi-accounts on AWS. Um, and, and service control policies allow you to essentially put guardrails around these accounts. So if you think about a security account where you're sending all of your logs, you have Security Hub running, you, and you really only need, and all your logs from your accounts are coming in there, and you really only need S3 and Security Hub. You can put a service control policy around that account to where you can't do anything. If somebody tries to go to the EC2 console to spin up an instance, they can't do it because the service control policy doesn't allow it. And then you can do the same for your user account. You can have like a user pool account. You can have a management plan account. You can have your development staging prod accounts. All of these things segmented out where you really limit what's going on. The thing I talked about earlier where Bitcoin mining in a random region, service control policies gets rid of that because you can limit to where you can limit by region. You can say, I only want people to be able to access resources and services in this region or in these regions, which essentially eliminates if anybody was able to actually get into um, another region. And that goes back to, and using this setup goes to your episode last week, which is why this cloud security podcast is so great because you cover topics that matter and kind of build on each other where you guys, you and Alexandra were talking about cross-account access. And AWS organizations requires the cross-account access set up for you to use these roles to switch into these accounts. So if anybody here hasn't listened to that episode, a lot of what I'm saying will make sense once you listen to what Alexandra and she's talked about with cross-account access perspective. But I would say, you know, from the beginning to do this, to do this at scale, you need to use AWS organizations. You need to do a multi-account setup. And, and that allows you to essentially create the framework to grow your organization um, without having to re-architect a lot. What happens that I've seen in the past is an organization experienced some growth, they just got around to funding, and now everything's changed. They're starting to work with enterprise customers. They're, they have to re-architect everything, but if they would have just set it up right from the beginning, it would have been as simple as kind of just spinning up new replicas of these accounts and in and, and, and these separate little environments that you've set up. So if you're on AWS and you don't have AWS organizations set up, even if you don't think you're going to even if you don't think you're going to scale, just go ahead and use AWS organizations to start to segment things out and and, and do it the right way there. And I think uh, it's a great point. Thanks for the shout out as well, by the way. Do, do check out the Alexandra episode, as I say in Portuguese. Uh, I mean, uh, he's happy with Alex if, if he's listening. <laughs> I, I, I did want to mention something really interesting. So the consulting work that I've done for some of the small to medium-sized businesses and startups, one and you touched on, on this really well, you know how a lot of us encourage people to go for multiple AWS accounts? A startup listening to it kind of thinks, is there additional cost associated? Like, why would I go for it? was going to cost me more. So I'll let you answer this. Is there yeah. an additional cost if I try yeah. and scale with multiple accounts? Yeah, no, you're going to get charged for what you're using. Same way if you would in one account. And then you don't have to, the, the thing that all startups are worried about is now do I have to manage the seven different bills if I create all these accounts? So as soon as you set uh -huh. up organizations, you can set up consolidated billing, and that's what you should do. You should have a billing account. Your CFO does not need access to the production account. There's no reason your your any of your finance people need to be in your production account. Imagine they're you know some of the non-technical people are, and this isn't their fault. They just don't know, but they're the worst when it comes to 
cybersecurity. They're going to do the bad things. They're going to click the phishing links. They're going to share their AWS credentials, whatever it is. So you don't want their account to be where your customer data lives. You want their account to be in a separate billing account, which you can do with AWS organizations, but you consolidate the billing. It's not, you're not going to get charged for using multiple accounts. It's all going to go into one place. Um, and you can even set service control policies around the number of resources that are spinning up. You can set some billing alerts to stop people from exceeding a certain amount. And if they try to exceed a certain amount, you can shut that down using AWS organizations. And a lot of the security services that we mentioned earlier all integrate with AWS organizations as well. So you can, in Security Hub, you create a master account and then you invite member accounts. So all of your accounts now report to one security hub. You don't have to manage eight security hubs. AWS encourages people to set up these multiple account setups, and then they set they they provide a way for you to manage it in one account, which is great because you know startups you don't need to manage eight, nine, ten accounts. You set this up; it takes a little bit to set up. Um, definitely not easy. I won't say that. But once you set it up and you set it up the right way, it's so easy to scale, and also it's going to help you sleep at night. Like you're you're, you're going to know that <laughs> certain things cannot happen in your environment, and that's really what you want. Yeah, and I, I think and there's plenty of resources from AWS as well on this space, and it, it definitely worthwhile checking them out. Uh, it doesn't take that long. Usually, most of the videos talk about how you can set up multiple accounts, and I, I do want to mention the other end of multiple accounts, as Paul has mentioned over here. Multi-account is the start, but unfortunately, there are too many orgs think that they are killing it because they have multiple accounts. Like, mm, yeah, that's the that's the other extreme. I've got it's kind of like the same thing that happened with DevOps when people uh, started using DevOps. They're like, oh, I've got Jenkins, but they're not really using Jenkins. Yeah. And they think, yeah. that's not DevOps. Uh, so <laughs> I probably want for the same thing as well. Oh, we've got a, a fellow Brazilian here. Hey, welcome, man. Um, so now, so kind of, we've kind of the gamut, right? Come at the gamut from where does one start? What does the maturity look like? And uh, I think a lot of people who are pumped, the auditors have left already, so we can talk more, talk more freely. Also, the big four auditors have left. The others who want to still learn are still here. The, uh, the, the one question that I'm pretty sure that they're looking for as well is that, is there some kind of a training or a certification that they can be tackling with this or to make them, I guess, I don't know, cloud practitioner certificate or something on the other that they can go for uh, that gives them an insight or should they be going to AWS documentation? Yeah, I think if you're an auditor and you're sitting out there and you're like, okay, I get it. I need to know more about the technology. I need to know more about what services my customers are using. Don't try to go out and learn more about how to audit the cloud. Don't go out and learn and get an audit cert for the cloud. Go out and learn about the cloud. Learn about the technology because again, you're a partner and they're going to ask you to provide guidance and provide advice and provide help, right? And they're going to um, need you to understand these services. It doesn't matter if you understand the standard. I don't. It doesn't matter if you know what in SOC 2 CC 6.6 is about protecting outside sources. That doesn't matter if you don't know that security groups apply to CC 6.6. That's where you have to get to. And and you'll you know that if you're an auditor, you probably know the standard. And if you don't know the standard in the audit world, guess what? You're going to audit every week. You're going to do the same thing all the time. You're going to keep auditing people. <laughs> you got a chance to get very familiar with the standard. So learn the technology. I would say. I really love AWS Cloud Practitioner. I think it's a great cert. And I think the even though it's really AWS focused, the concepts apply across all the other cloud providers. I don't know the equivalents on the Azure GCP side, but I'm sure they have an entry level cert. But I would say pick a cloud provider, learn the basics of the terminology, and that's where I would start. Um, but there, there are resources out there from an audit perspective if you kind of check that block. Cloud Security Alliance is great. They're known as CSA, and you probably heard of like CSA star assessments. I would look into the Cloud Security Alliance from a resource perspective of learning how to do these audits because they have a couple things. They have this cert called the CCSK, which is the Certified Cloud Security Knowledge, I believe, exam. Really great cert that tells you the basic about stuff we've been talking about here, shared responsibility, how to understand different threats in the cloud. And then they also are coming out with this new cert called the CCAK, and it's the Certified Cloud Auditing Knowledge Cert, which is going to be focused on how to audit the cloud. And, and they're probably, I think it's coming out in October where they'll probably release like an initial exam for people to, to look into. So they do a lot of work where they focus on the how to audit and how to secure cloud specifically. It's, it's really a standard that's, that's um, specific to the cloud. And what's cool about it is their framework, they have this cloud controls matrix. 
and it, they map it to all of the standards. They map it to FedRAMP, to NIST, to ISO, to SOC 2. So you can see, okay, this requirement around static code analysis is covered in all these other frameworks. So if I was looking into how to do something in the cloud or wanting to understand more about how these concepts relate to different frameworks, CSA, Cloud Security Alliance, is a really great resource to, to, to go to and, and learn from. ISACA, the, the organization that does the CISA cert, they have an ISACA AWS audit guide. And if you're an auditor and you're going to a client and, you're, and they're in AWS, go to ISACA, get this AWS audit guide and just read it. When you go to your client and, they, and they're talking about security groups, read what ISACA says because they literally tell you where to go in the console, what to click on, what to look for. They tell you everything. It's laid out. And if you can read, you can audit on AWS by using this ISACA AWS guide. guide. So those are a few resources that I've used in the past that have helped me a ton. And, and again, like all this information is out there. Like you were saying, Ashish, like you can just go read the AWS documentation. They do a great job of understanding it. One resource I would look at for all auditors is, is the security pillar in AWS. They have the AWS well-architected framework. Go read the security pillar white paper. I think it's like 26 pages or so. Read it before bed or something if you're a nerd like me. But just that tells you the basics of how to set up the clouds. Like there's information out there, but all of it comes back to, for me at least, my opinion, it's the technology. Learn the technology. The standard stuff will work out because at the end of the day, these compliance standards are saying the same thing. They're all saying the same thing. They're saying to use MFA, use privilege, privilege access management, role-based access control, all these different things that they're just framing up differently based off of the standard, but it's all the same. So if you understand the yeah. technology, you'll be able to do the audit. That's, a, that's an awesome answer, man. Uh, I think I'll might take some of those links from you as well so they can add it in the show notes. Uh, and I think I've got uh, some of those comments coming. When you mentioned static code analysis, I just looked at Paul's comment. He said he, he mm -hmm. has used uh, SonarCube and he's DevSecOps. Someone else has the DevOps as their middle name. And, uh, well, there you go. Nick is pre, you, you should preach now. <laughs> you, you were in a flow there. So definitely so you should you start preaching, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I know this is kind of like towards the tail end of our show as well now. So I've got some fun questions for you. It won't be too many. The first one, what do you spend most time on when you're not working on cloud or technology? My kids. Uh, you're you're working on your kids. <laughs> spend all my time with my kids. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old, so they take up most of my life and I love it. Like I, I love being a dad. It changed my life, but it's been amazing. So like if I'm not doing anything related to the cloud, I'm doing something goofy with them. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, I, I love the fact that everyone can be an adult kid with their own kids because, well, I mean, the kids don't understand adults fun anyways, right? So um, <laughs> it's pretty awesome that you get to do that. Yeah. Uh, what is something that you're proud of, but is not on your social media? Ooh, that's a, that's a tough one. Definitely my, my kids as well there, but I think, you know, one thing that I, that's not on my social media is some of the things that I overcame um, to get to where I had to. So for example, if you can look at my LinkedIn, you can see I played basketball at Florida state, but what most people don't know is I broke both of my ankles. Not Ooh. at the same time, I broke one after the other lost my scholarship, ended up joining the military, and then ended up getting my scholarship back all through this long, windy journey of, of trying to become a Division One college athlete. So I didn't let, and that's kind of been my mentality in life throughout. It's like, if I didn't let two broken ankles stop me from becoming a Division One college athlete, there's really not much else that should stop me from doing what I want to do. Um, but that's just one thing right there. It's like, I have a lot of stories of perseverance of things that are just ridiculous that I, that I was fortunate enough to overcome, overcome, but it's not on my social media. Oh, wow, man. Dude, broke, breaking ball angles. Oh, ankles. It's like, geez. And considering basketball is all about jumping 20, like, <laughs> and running. Like, oh, uh, yeah. good on you for coming out of it, man. And I think, and sounds like all positive as well. Yeah, it worked out. Yeah. And now you're an, now you're an AWS cloud uh, certified person as well. So it's even more awesome. Yeah. Uh, final question. What's your favorite cuisine or restaurant that you can share? Ooh. So I live in Miami, so and and my wife is Dominican, so I love Latin food um, and, nice. and I love Dominican food. So there's a Dominican dish um, called sancocho, which is essentially like a big soup, and it has all kinds of meat in there and vegetables, and it's it's amazing. So my favorite dish is sancocho. So I would um, encourage anybody to look it up. If you come to Miami, I'll have my my mother-in-law make you some. She makes a oh nice great sancocho. So she's when you come visit. Yeah, yeah, for sure, man. Like, wait, yeah. so sancocho is like this big bowl of soup. Do you have it with bread or do you just like just gobble up the soup? You Generally with like rice, 
the Latin side. Like you'll put it on a little bit of rice or a lot of rice, depending on how you like it. But yeah, it's it's really uh, good. Um, you're making me hungry, man. But uh, <laughs> thanks so much for coming in, man. Where can people find you if they have any follow-up questions? Yeah, LinkedIn. Right now, that's my only social network. I'm not on Twitter, Instagram, anywhere else. I'm kind of just on on LinkedIn. But yeah, LinkedIn, find me, reach out to me. I, I spend a lot of time talking with people from LinkedIn. So if you write me and you want advice, I'll hop on a call with you. I'll hop on a Zoom and we'll chat and I'll be able to help you out as much as I can. This coronavirus has made the world smaller. Um, in some phase because we all got stuck at home. So we went to our computers and now we're all talking. I met some amazing people like Nicholas. I consider him a friend and we chatted many, many times through LinkedIn. So, you know, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to meet with anybody and just chat. I, obviously, I love talking about AWS. So if you like talking about <laughs> cloud and auditing, like reach out to me. <laughs> all the auditors just like reach out to AJ and he will make your life easy on where to start. Cool. Awesome. Thanks for coming in, man. I, I think I, I really appreciate and I'm pretty sure a lot of auditors listening to this would appreciate as well. Thanks for answering all the questions that came in through. And just to thank a lot of thank yous coming in as well. Paul's just mentioned Paul Hand. I have to drop off. But thanks for coming in, Paul. But I, it, it's been, yeah, I think it's been really interesting to hear that you don't really have to be super technical to yep. be an artist. I think that's the one piece I will just take back. Just learn a bit about the cloud, the same way you've learned about Facebook and LinkedIn. There was no manual for it. You just had exactly. to go and pick it up and that was that was it. But dude, thanks so much again. And I can't wait to have you back in again uh, for more, I guess, more amazing things in AWS and auditing and uh, cloud. Yeah, we'll definitely have to do this again in the near future. I, I have some exciting things I'm working on that you know I think your audience will like. So we'll, we'll have Perfect. to do it I definitely yeah. appreciate the opportunity, Ashish. This is, this is awesome. No problem, man. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for listening to that episode of Cloud Security Podcast. If you found some new information from that episode, we would appreciate if you share it with others. Share it with us as well if you have any good feedback or good learnings from the episode. We are on all your favorite podcast platforms. If you don't find us there, you can always go on our website, www.cloudsecuritypodcast.tv to listen to the latest episode. We appreciate your support in helping us grow. It helps us bring more guests. It helps us support the channel. So really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time and talk to you on the next episode.